Okay, Aquarela. Um, I'm actually really happy we're talking about this film because I think there's a lot to talk about. Um, I think it, as a film in itself, you know, there might not be so much to sort of break down and analyze, but I think it brings up really big ideas about what what filmmaking is, what documentary is today, especially today, what impact documentary is, and and really what climate change, and also, I guess, what climate change documentaries are about. Um, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, I think I watched it in the cinema, I watched it with a few people. Um, I think it's clearly, sort of visual experience about water, I think selling it as a climate change documentary was a really big mistake. Um, it is, whatever, I, I read some things about it. They said it's, it's an ode to water. Um, and, and I think that's what it should have been sold as because it did sort of take us on a journey of, of sort of ice and then sort of like violent waves and then waterfalls, but even then, I was really unhappy with the depiction of water. I think um, the music threw me off and made me think that it was sort of about the rage of water and, and you know, sort of Mother Earth getting angry and sort of having this, like, rageful, like, fight against the world. Um, and I think, I, I fundamentally just think it didn't, it wasn't successful at making an inanimate object which is water, I guess, um, empathetic uh, at all. Um, Air Day, which I'm probably going to talk about a lot, um, did this, and somehow it just was way more emotionally provocative, I guess. Um, I mean, yeah, there, there's a lot of things to say about it. Um, I, I just, I guess my biggest question when I left was, okay, there's not like a clear narrative, that's fine, I, I'm okay with that, but if this is an ode to water, who is it for? Because I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really see the point of it either. Um, full disclosure, I wasn't able to see it in the cinema, so... Um, found a link on a, um, I think it's like the Russian version of Facebook, but they illegally host quite a lot of, like, well, most films on there, so I found a link uh, to watch on my laptop. Okay, well, we're not promoting that, though. And, um, <laughs> no, 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 I'm, 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 I'm saying it more as like a kind of apology, but... Um, disclaimer. It's a disclaimer. Um, and I went in with the best of intentions, like, had a 180p HD uh, resolution ready, but then it started buffering. Uh, so then I had to put it down to 480p before I could watch it. Uh, oh, from 1080 to 480. Oh, that is so bad. And then, um, and then I was, uh, was also cooking at the same time. After a while, not the whole time, but um, no, I thought it was really, <laughs> like, surprisingly, really pointless and. Um, I don't know, just kind of mis misguided. I don't really know. It felt like um, a sort of Vimeo staff pick more than a film, or 
I, I would even mm. add that that's an insult to Vimeo staff picks. I think it probably is. Yeah. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think <laughs> I don't think I'd go that far. I think. It took me a while, but once I really... And th the thing is that there are some images that are really striking and beautiful. And I think that the filmmakers made a huge deal about... That was what the marketing was about. This is the most dangerous film that's ever been made. That's what they Why said. Why is it dangerous? Because of the... like. Uh, well, obviously, you know, when it opens, it opens with these, you know, uh, with the sort of uh, cars driving through that ice lake yeah. and they fall. So obviously having a camera in in that ice lake is super dangerous because all of your equipment might just fall into you know, freezing water and disappear. I just want to mm. counter that and uh. say two films that come to mind. Uh, yeah. Fitzcarraldo, Herzog's okay. uh, movie with uh, your man pulling the boat over um, But is over it more hill. dangerous? There's got to be more dangerous films than that. And uh, this film Raw, I think in which uh, <laughs> I think something like 50 people were injured during that 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 don't take me on <laughs> that on my word, but it's a movie with live lions. What and about um, uh, Salo Pasolini got killed for? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, whatever. Regardless, they kind of like pitched this. I like, and I I did a little bit of reading after that, and they were like, okay, so they pitched it as like sort of one of the most dangerous documentaries to be but made. But I think that's um, kind of like a testament to the pointlessness of it that you could think that that's a sort of like valid. Like a, a value for a film is yeah. that it's dangerous. I think that, and I think that's what, when I came out, my initial reaction was absolute rage. And it wasn't <laughs> rage because of the music, the metal music over the waves crashing. It wasn't, it wasn't because of that. It was rage because, and, and th I know this, this t goes away from filmmaking and kind of comes outside of film criticism and looking at films as, p as audience members. But I'm really angry that people are spending that much money um, mm -hmm. making a film about the climate. And this is what like I got was really really angry about. I was like, that if this is about the climate, which you're marketing it as, it's not reaching an audience that would actually make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, you're not going to change climate deniers' uh, uh, point of view with this, or people that sit in the middle. You know, I was telling George like a meme or a, a viral image of a turtle with a straw actually did more for the climate than this $2.5 million documentary. Is that how much it cost? Yeah. Oh, um, so I guess for me, it was just kind of like, I know that there is a time for, for visual uh, documentaries that are exploratory and that are visually stunning. But I guess, especially with climate change, it's like, haven't we gotten to the point now mm -hmm. where we actually need something that has an impact because we're all just it's in and that's what that film was we're all just watching the the glaciers melt away mm. and and that's it we're just watching it so i almost felt like i was complicit in i mean which maybe is the point the, the film's aesthetic is almost like look how cool this looks yeah these I glaciers are melting and i think the one part of the movie that kind of uh offers any answers to why this film was made or what the intentions of the filmmaker were because i think I was thinking about what, um, how, in fact, we should approach criticizing this film and in what context we should do that. And I think the um, at the end of the film, the the a title card comes up and says, "This film is dedicated to Alexander Sokolov, which is the that. the um, yeah. the Russian uh, Tarkovsky's protege yeah. and also a, 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 uh, influencer on slow cinema." Um, and I think that that is a p 
maybe a good starting point for mm. us to look at how what the intentions of the filmmaker were. I think if I were an executive at one of the dozens of soft funding bodies from Germany to Scotland to I think even Italy's in there, some Scandinavian companies um, that gave some of their uh, soft government money funds towards this, I'd I'd be screwing because the BFI as well. Isn't it? Yeah, may I, d- I, I didn't saw see that. that. The, the, the right. But I think they, I, I don't know, you know, maybe we can look into this a little bit more. Um, and so I'm responsible for not having done that as of yet. But it's interesting uh, to think about, firstly, was the money given before they shot this footage? I would suspect not. I think that a lot of it was shot, you know, for the way that the movie opens. I, I Maybe that was shot before and then they gave them some money to go and, uh, finish it. I don't know, but it feels like th- my takeaway from the movie is this is a film that has been cobbled together out of four or five different uh, unrelated events. And mm. I think that, you know, it, it, the movie, the idea that it's an O to Water is I would put my money on it being an absolute afterthought to the. To I, was, the I was imagining. Images. I, I was actually trying to imagine like the way they would have been pitching that film to try and get money and um, I mean I think the pitch is really is know. is appealing. I think water is something worth looking into. I mean it's the reason we're alive. It's um um it, it essentially it's responsible for everything on earth. Um I've seen a lot of different artists work with uh water cuz it's uh kind of trendy right now and I I, I hate to say trendy because it's you know essential. Um but I think they all put it in the context of what water means to humans. Yeah, I think uh, so. Watching the film, I think the first twenty minutes we have this footage. Wi- yeah, again, the first twenty minutes are great. Firstly, there was no uh, hint of location, so the, the all of this footage wasn't even pulled together by lo- location title cards or by one location. Th- I don't th- there think was you needed no con- that though. But, but, that, that, but, but my problem was there was no continuity in the images. You know, the, the, it's not Kuenistaski, yeah. or you know, it's not that movie. And it yeah. and it wor- the the Sokharov references. I think he's trying to do this. Mm-hmm. He's trying to do some version of slow cinema again but maybe i'm wrong for the reference to sokarov but no no i don't think you are there's a moment where he does the tarkovsky dream sequence uh under the water through the great mm-hmm. through the glaciers and it almost feels like this dream that that you know it yeah. seems like he's doing that but i guess yeah it, it wasn't one thing or the other it but my issue with that the first 20 minutes is we that we have all this quite terrifying footage of the you know um People going under the ice and the r- and um, the the rescuers rescuing them and taking the cars for out from under the ice and then we see that somebody's actually drowned and then w- uh, one of the uh, I think they're Russians correct me if I'm wrong but one of the one of the rescuers uh, one of the teams says um, why are you on the ice at this time of year and one of the people that that just nearly drowned says well um, it, it 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 usually melts three weeks later yeah. than this and that was the point where I was like okay. You you were you were slow, but you got me. Like that's what this yeah. movie's about. It's is about melting climate change. Climate yeah. change, but but then and it, then it just into doesn't take else. that yeah. anywhere. And then you have these loose ca- the woman on the boat, the people in the in 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 what I assumed was some South American country with the waterfalls, and and it just has no it mm. just has no coherence at all. Yeah, yeah. No, I I don't know about the Tarkovsky thing, but it just reminded me of like um. Uh, universities people get stoned and watch um like youtube compilations called people are awesome or like a planet like earth kind of like yeah style. but, but just not as good earth. but mm-hmm. it was there were videos they were just like people doing like stupid 
stunts, but they they were awesome. So I guess they uh, came off. But this to me felt like that, but with the camera and the and the shots it was getting, and it was much more about what the filmmakers were capable of than the subject. Yeah. Um, which is actually. <laughs> surely kind of the opposite of what it's trying to well, achieve. Well, that's not the intention. And when, when I read stuff after, I read a few things that he said, and he would talk a lot about um, about the crew and how they felt after. I think he said, oh, he's like, he said something like, my team was so shocked. He kept thinking to ourselves, did we make it? We're still alive. Um, and then he said something like, oh, um, it's all about the fight. And I think it was all of these quotes that, and I, I kind of think this is where the, the rock, uh, the sort of metal came in. I think that he felt as um, he made this film that he really fought to make this. You know, it was But there's no sense of that in the film. There's no sense of it, but I have I have feeling that, that so so I guess it felt like at the end it was so much more about the filmmakers and them being badass doing this. You know, they yeah. went to the hurricanes. Being and awesome. Like, yeah, being awesome. And they went. They were in the hurricane in, uh, I think it was Florida. Miami. Yeah. But from um, that, let me add, we, that's the, we know that that intention was there or we, f we can kind of prove the intention was there from the music, from the way that it was shot, from the marketing of the film. So it's not a kind of... Uh, we're not projecting what a false intention onto the, the deal filmmaker. With the music, because the second the music time, was so exactly. the second time those heavy uh, guitars, yeah, like a uh, Russian MMA fighter's entrance music came on. And then at one point there was something. The, the film, to be honest. But that just to add to uh -huh. that, the so that was during the middle sequence where there was just lots of waves and some slow motion yeah. stuff. But then at the end of the film, after the Florida footage, I don't know if you got no, to that. No. The footage was actually really good, but then yeah. they started using a classical score. Yeah, so it was not, not only was, was the choice of music didn't quite work for me, which is a subjective thing, mm -hmm. I don't think the filmmakers knew what they were doing with their soundtrack because mm -hmm. they just switched halfway through. I, I the, the, the guitar music seemed kind of ironic. Like I thought that was, At first, I thought that was the use. It was kind of like a self-parody of, of what the images were conveying. Like It was sort of deliberately admitting that they were a bit... Like bloated and bombastic. Wait, the the guitar is the metal. Yeah, like the okay. kind of crunching. Oh, I yeah, thought yeah, it maybe yeah. was the filmmakers sort of poking fun at themselves a bit, being like, "Oh, we're um, we're kind of dicks mm. at best." But I don't know but because I, I guess <laughs> I guess at the end it's it's about this journey. It's about this journey. Literally, you know, the clay the glaciers break, they fall, they go into the ocean. The ocean is rageful. Then you sort of I, I believe it's a flood. And you know a hurricane, and then we sort of end up in Cara in, in Venezuela. In uh, uh, how did you uh, know it's Venezuela? Oh, uh, I think I looked it up, but also I know I I'm not sure. I'm not sure actually. Um, is it is there a has a dam burst in that footage? Like a, a dam has burst, or there's there's something that's overflowing. I think so, but it wasn't there's people clear. hiding somewhere. It wasn't very clear. Um, no, there was so there was some footage of this flood and where there was like a sense that a dam had burst, and then there was the waterfall. Um, and the waterfall bit, I don't know, I guess it obviously made me think of Allah for Eliasson, you know, the, 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 the artist and, and I don't know, I, I guess, I guess he just wanted to make it this sort of, sort of soft, like journey of water, but the music really threw me off in this whole idea of this journey of a water, of water, because if anything, water is like the most malleable form in the world. But I think it, it's not necessarily that the music has to reflect our idea of what water might of what yeah. water might sound like. But I think 
there was no continuity of music. I would have preferred it to have been just footage of waves and an hour and a half long metal guitar <laughs> soundtrack. But why does it, it why does it need music? Like the water is music. I that, think that it would have been bizarre. more powerful without like I guess my biggest thing is like there were some images that were beautiful. There was this one, I don't know if you guys remember, there was like a hole there was like a hole in the glacier and then the water would come and it was yeah. sort of the cr oh that was I mean it was gorgeous yeah that was um, one that was my favorite moment it was, I mean it was, was so that beautiful like, um, when the camera was kind of traveling no uh, it's a shot still. it's a shot from above the ice it's a stationary shot oh okay and it's just like the, there's a hole in the water but the the edges of the ice keep going under and, ab and then back above the water and the ice makes this like this crackling yeah. kind of sound yeah. and then you see all of these forms yeah and it's, it's just it is beautiful it's like glass it's the, gorgeous um, yeah the shot that I like most was um, I think it's just after you know the guy the, is he drunk or concussed he keeps falling over yeah he's concussed uh, yeah concussed yeah um, yeah, that makes his friend sense. has just died under yeah. the ice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought maybe he'd have a drink to take, maybe take the edge off it. But um, uh, the the camera's traveling really fast. I think it seems like it might be underwater, but I guess it's not. Uh, over this cracking ice, um, it goes on for like maybe a minute. I think that's the seconds. sequence that Shalini was talking about yeah. with the Tarkovsky yes. thing. It's yes, like it's, it's yeah. underwater. The, the camera's underwater. The camera is that I like that just because it was the only moment in the film to me where everything wasn't like crystal clear and HD. It was a bit more, and Murky. I don't know if it was intentionally like this beyond that's what the shot, that's how they got the shot, but it was kind of more abstract and Actually, the mysterious. Yeah, the and that was so lacking shots, in the rest yeah. of the film, I thought. The abstract shots are really nice. They, there was also that bit where there was like the glaciers and just sort of looking at the glaciers almost like they were a body, like a sculpture. It was gorgeous. But it was like, I guess in the end, it's like the set, like that awe that you get with those few sh shots just wasn't there. Yeah, and I, th I think the... There's kind of ultra HD. I don't know what it was. Um, I think it was 96 frames. It was shot in 96 frames per second. Yeah. I didn't. Which I don't that. know. Um, I feel like that that is so at odds with the film as well. Like, if kind of nature, the water and technology, like man's or human progress is at odds, it's like those are two completely contradicting things and I, was, I just kept thinking like the heaviness of this really um, overdeveloped technology was just kind of like not complementing the purity and the essentialness of what it was filming and that mm. just kind of I don't know it just didn't feel right it felt kind of uh, I yeah, think yeah, the yeah, problem yeah. is he introduces humans which is which he and I actually uh, again I read up on this and he did say the first twenty minutes are actually a trick for the audience to keep them there, <laughs> and 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 for me it's like actually had well, you uh, not brought in because because uh, there are you know we talked about Erde I think Erde the reason Erde is so powerful is have you seen that theory? Oh, it's so no. good. And the reason it's so power powerful is it's because it does relate the work people are doing, excavating the earth or whatever, and does talk to them. So it has a very clear relationship with human beings. Whereas this clearly didn't want to have a relationship with human beings, but then placed them in random places. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, and didn't uh, didn't give them a, uh, a place in the film yeah. narratively. Yeah, didn't give them any place. That girl on the boat had absolutely no. Well, I thought narrative. at first, okay, we've got the first twenty minutes with these, you know, I drivers on the ice that are drowning, and then, okay, now we're with another woman who's uh, in a boat in the middle of the, and, and that got quite tense. Um, yeah, it did. And then it, it, I I would have maybe forgiven it a little bit more if it was like two halves, but I mean. Just I guess that was is about like you know like a hu- one human sort of fighting. But it was two. It was two. Th- and cool. they showed the one shot. I just mm. think like just following on my my other thought, I I think all of these small things, the 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 music, the the technology versus the the nature, the issues with the the humans, it gets at the larger issue issue of the filmmaker or filmmakers not really knowing what they were doing with the film and not really having any um, any direction mm-hmm. or any... It, it, it honestly felt like... Uh, I've seen, you know, Discovery Channel documentaries, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, David Attenborough, that, like, stuff like that that's so much more evocative. For, you, know, you know what audience those are for. That's kind yeah. of, And people want a really clear, high-definition shot of a polar bear or whatever and also the emotion of the thing does does its job like there's a clear intention of the piece it's educational it's evocative yeah yeah i guess the biggest thing is this it wasn't evocative (laughs) enough and actually for for me as as you know a film goer it wasn't it wasn't evocative enough and then and then again like what i said in the beginning you go back to climate change documentaries i don't think a, a, a normal audience member would watch this i think that's really important I mean and i think I just mm. the, the two films we referenced already uh Stasky, if i'm saying that right and erde yeah at least um are for the art house viewer i'd say erde could um blend over into a, i a, think a traditional mainstream audience. audiences could watch erde, but yeah. with this film Again, A, because it's been sold like that. If it was a film that was like, it was just two filmmakers or a group of filmmakers that got a rush from shooting these waves and it's like, here's the mood, here's what they shot. That's fine. I can watch that on the internet. I, you don't need to waste European soft money on, on that. And then on top of that, selling it as a climate change film, which doesn't even engage with an art house audience, but even less would... Uh, you know, emotionally drive uh, a larger audience to actually think about, about climate, climate change. I, yeah. I kind of think, I actually think it could engage a, a, a larger audience. audience. Yeah, just because it's so surface. But in its in its format, in its hour, hour and a half long mm, cinematic I mean, I don't know, it d- depends depend how they put it out. It's not, obviously, it's not like a edge of your seat film, but I feel like it's so kind of superficial and empty that in a way it might be able to just be sold on the kind of superficial mm. qualities of I it, mean which could, could be, like be attractive to Yeah, people. I could see like <laughs> college kids getting stoned and watching this. Yeah, I that's exact, exactly what yeah. it reminds me of. The kind of shit documentary mm-hmm. people uh, at uni- like who I was with living with at university would w- get stoned yeah. to and watch, but and not watch take it. anything in because there's really... Because you don't have to, you can just watch it and hang out (laughs) with your friends. But again, not to, you know, I don't think it's healthy just to berate films for the sake of it. But on (laughs) that point, I don't think that it actually, I I think those stoner documentaries have more value 
than than something like this because it mm. this is in some middle ground where it doesn't even know. But I think that's what it is. I, I, admit, I admit it doesn't know it, but I basically think that's probably that probably is its value. Right. It's it's something that like I think it does. Students can get stoned to yeah, um, and kind of feel a bit like intellectually nourished but minus the first 20 minutes which i wanted to say would would work yeah. as a short film i would watch yeah. that as a yeah. short yeah, film. yeah, yeah, that yeah would the, be great. The, the kind of wide shots and the um yeah when you when you figure out what's happening with the drilling um yeah there's a kind of thriller element to it because you kind of or a mist you yeah, don't I mean know what's going on and out of the lake is crazy no the first but 20 then, minutes but then really it good. does basically become what we're saying which is like a s- cool yeah. skiing compilation film without the skis but um, yeah. Actually, on the uh, Russian streaming website, whatever thing I was on, the next film that that came up, uh, like as a suggestion, was a kind of like skiing stunt compilation video, which seems mm-hmm. qu- quite fitting. They they got Russians are notoriously good with algorithms, so that uh, <laughs> that apparently that figures allegedly. Yeah, I guess <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <that> <laughs> I guess in the end, it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, again, go back to the same thing. It's like, what are these films for, really? I think yeah. where what is documentary today? And I have thought about that today a lot because obviously, you know, no, we don't rely on the news anymore. Uh, or we we you shouldn't rely on the news well, anymore. Well, we shouldn't, yeah, because it's extremely biased. And we're kind of looking more and more at documentary as a sort of investigative journalism. And obviously, all you know, there are all kinds of documentaries. They don't all have to be you know, impact documentaries in a way. No, but if you're going to sell it as one... I think that they had... It was, you know, it was dangerous. It it didn't even look dangerous to make. You know, you're saying it was, and I believe the filmmakers, but in the other sense, it wasn't even dangerous politically. It it wasn't dangerous in in any sense of the word. Um, So, yeah, I mean, for, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, Crouch End, it, it, it it wasn't the worst viewing experience I've ever had. I didn't walk out of it. I definitely had, you know, one of the annoying things about it. I'm reading Paul Schrader's um, Transcendental Cinema again, right? And uh, or Transcendental Style, whatever the title is. He talks about slow cinema to evoke boredom, mm-hmm. but you know, some filmmakers use slow cinema techniques or s- Transcendental Style to evoke a um, um, meditative yeah, uh, sort of state, get lost right? Yeah. But yeah. yeah, the movie doesn't even do that. I think it does it in some bits. For, I think for, f- it, uh, for ten minutes. Yeah, I think it it, it is. Uh, yeah, it does accomplish that at times. I guess it just it, it didn't come together. And maybe if they had chopped off like you know thirty minutes, that maybe would have. I think. I think it's maybe it would have been a Vimeo staffing. Yeah. yeah, I think. But yeah, I think yeah, maybe. I think it's not meditative because it's so heavy. Like the the director's presence and the feeling of them. Doing shit with with the, the feeling cool and feeling cool and and like the overbearing technology and stuff. It's more like it kind of masquerades as meditation, but it's basically like it's like I don't know, more like nineties MTV or something. Mm. And and the thing is, more and more, and every time I go to film festivals and talk to people, more and more people are saying films are getting made for film festival audiences, and it's just like. Although I, I I love that I love those films, but it's, spe- it's just especially a film like this. Was this a film? What, what first? Uh, yeah, it was when I went to I went to Reykjavik, and there was a programmer there that was talking about like films and yeah. like, getting films into festivals and blah blah blah. 
And he was basically just saying, like, well, more and more films are made for film festivals. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, the more pretentious and the more, you know, the more it speaks to film festivals, to f people in the industry. But how can that be a good business model? When it's not, but it's only a few films that are getting out and actually going to, you know, break the mainstream. The rest will probably stay in that little circle. Yeah. We'll, we'll end up on video on demand platforms, but we'll still speak to that same circle of people. But the I would argue uh -huh. the film did not even do that. I mean, no, I no, don't no. consider myself part of the circle, but I yeah, don't. Yeah, I, gr I agree with that. I agree with that. It is more about the shots and the accomplishment. I'm sure I'm sure cinematographers love it. Mm -hmm. um, I actually, I read quite a cool, um, I don't know if it's cool, but it's just kind of a coincidence. Um, it was a, a Criterion Top 10 um, by this American filmmaker called Lev Kalman, who makes like these kind of weird... 16 millimeter things. Um, they're like kind of artifact films. Um, but he said he was uh, talking about a Criterion collection, uh, well, Criterion DVD called, um, shout out Criterion, called uh, Science is Fiction. They're these short films by a French documentarian called Jean Panlevé. Not sure if I'm saying that right. But he's like a sort of, early to mid 20th century um, kind of science, um, nature documentarian, but his films are mostly black and white and they're kind of very small and kind of modest, but they capture things like crustaceans uh, in quite simple but quite poetic ways you wouldn't expect. Sort of like basically the opposite scale to this where rather than being about a topic as Grand. grand as water yeah. it's as small as like um what what crabs are like underwater things mm -hmm. that you wouldn't have seen back then but even now it feels but like watching them and their behavior and the way they act feels very uh kind of humbling but he in his um his description of this this film feels quite uh relevant to uh aquarella he says uh, I think we're in a moment now that's making our nature documentaries worse. With HD, HDR and CGI, they seamlessly illustrate already decided upon science, making the unhuman world seem as knowable and digestible as a Pixar fable. This is why, as, Im as impressive as they can be, they're disposable. We abandon the HD doc when the 4K one comes along. And I'm imagining when the next technology comes along, yeah. everyone will forget about this. But yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely fitting. And it's funny because it's like you were talking about the, those short films. It's actually the smaller things that speak more to us on our day-to-day -day lives. And, you know, why an image of a turtle with a straw is more effective than these HD images. Yeah, that's very fitting. Honey boy. I'll start. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love the film. I, it's got problems. I think the um, the script was very fucking good. I think structurally. Do we need to say what the film's about at all? I don't know. Does that help? Shia LaBeouf. Um, Shia LaBeouf. 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 Um, <laughs> uh, That's the pitch. He's a child actor. Um, his father is slightly abusive. Um and he's trying to make it. I assume he's uh, on the 
show we now know as Even Stevens. Yeah. And it cuts between, the movie cuts between 1995, I believe, when he's a child and his father's um, taking him to shows and stuff and reading his lines with him. And when uh, Sheila Booth is um, in an institution, a rehab. And that uh, actually happened as well. Where he wrote the screenplay wrote, yeah, for yeah, the movie. Yeah. So... And, and so very autobiographical. Him and his dad are living in a, like a shady motel in somewhere in California. I think. Yeah. And also his dad is his employee because he gets paid to be his, his chaperone. chaperone. That's, yeah. that's yeah. kind of like the most interesting thing in a way is the idea of um, the kid. Is providing for his yeah, family. Yeah, yeah. And there's an like employee. a contract basically mm-hmm. of worker and employer between them. which And also the dad being jealous because the dad was a wannabe actor he's uh, a clown he's a clown he's a successful clown but an unsuccessful actor um and it's a sort of psycho drama that's kind of like an in thing psycho uh, in that it looks at a psychology or it sort of yeah you were like a sort of psychological character yeah Yeah. i mean psychological kind of chamber chamber drama i guess because mostly in the motel there's a Mm -hmm. little bit um, I I reckon you could get away with pitching it as a coming of age film as well. In yeah, in definitely. It, it almost too simultaneous coming of age. Yeah, film. it's like a coming of age yeah. later on. Not in directly, life b- and uh, then traditionally, but yeah. But what what does for the coming of age and I get it in the the second part because it's so kind of obvious that he's while he's writing this script he's coming to terms with his relationship with his dad. But in the first part, apart from the kind of implausible. Um, relationship he has with fk twigs where it's implied he loses his virginity to a sex worker played by fk twigs what did, what does did he you does he s- sorry just on that i didn't yeah. i didn't get he lost his virginity i got that well she's like naked in his room they're just cuddling i think to me yeah. because it cuts from them uh going to bed and then the morning when the dad comes in that's a sort of no but then the, d- the dad thinks that it's that but it's actually not that that's okay, what I got. Apart from and he gives her money. But apart from that, to answer your, as well, yeah. to answer anyway, your question, yeah. I yeah. think that what does he kind of the 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 moment for me of of his change, whether it's a coming coming of age traditionally uh, speaking or not, is when he tells his father he has like the big talk with his dad, and he's watching. There's a moment. Uh, it's maybe three quarters of the way through when he's watching his dad from outside of the motel watch the show that he's in, and he's preparing to talk to him you know he's got a tear rolling down his face and the dad notices and then the um the boy whose name i can't remember because it's otis. not sheer and otis is that his name yeah. yeah goes into the motel and confronts his father and he basically says look i want you to be a better dad yeah i want you to stop um you know beating on me like both both emotionally and physically mm-hmm. and i want this and the other and then the father kind of gives uh what you think is a loving response an understanding response mm-hmm. but then just ends up Hit being the shit out of him, basically, and mm-hmm. that, and I think that is great, but bec- well not great, obviously. But the way the dad never changes, and there's no, mm-hmm. there's never any reconciliation. I think it's really true up until the last, e- yeah, e- even yeah, in the yeah. last minute, there's still no change because he says, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like quite a lot of the film is is naive, not necessarily in a bad way, but just like there are some quite, especially the second part, the idea of. I'm sure it's Shirley Booth being quite earnest and being like, this really helped me writing this screenplay. And But the stuff with Lucas Hedges, who plays Shirley Booth when he's older. Who's brilliant. Who, who's Yeah, he's, he's doing what he always does. That, that part feels quite kind of naive, not in a bad way, but what feels more sort of um, like lived in 
about the first part is the fact his dad just never learns anything and just stays exactly how he is, which is sad, but I think that's how it normally is. Well, I think it's like it an o- it's also just a really honest portrayal of recovery of trauma because, and I think that's what I think makes it so powerful is that it is a depiction of one person trying to overcome trauma with a very... With with the realization that it needs to come just from them, like you know, it, it was a process where it obviously needed to come from just him, not his father, because he wasn't his father wasn't going to change. And I think what makes it kind of special is that it's not self pitying, despite the fact that Sheila Boo has publicly kind of had his sort of nervous breakdown. You know, do you know when he's had his nervous breakdown in public, and. And 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 this is if I, uh, this almost could to some people be seen as an apology. Yeah. I mean, well, obviously it's him working through his his trauma, but it could in s- in some ways be seen as like as some kind of apology. And some people might be like, can he make up for you know essentially being an egomaniac? But I think he does because it's you know there's no self pity in it. It's really honest. There's a line in the movie where he says, um, "I'm a narcissist with, or I'm I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority yeah. complex." Yeah. I thought that was great. Yeah, yeah, it was Sounds a good. Sounds like an Eminem lyric. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> a good line. Um, yeah, no, I, I, to me, the second part didn't, it didn't feel as like alive as the first part. Maybe because of the sort of self, uh, like realizing what the what he was going through. Mm. The kind of maybe I think there's a there's a bit of. It was weird in a way. The second part, which is nearer the present, feels more sentimental and nostalgic than the first part. What do you mean by the second part? Like when, uh, when, when, when the it's kids, him in when, the he, when, when he's in rehab, when it's Lucas Hedges in yeah. rehab. Yeah, yeah, I know. But what doesn't you mean. it? M- am I remembering wrong that it cuts between the two over time? Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so, yeah, do yeah. you mean this? Oh, the second. Quite distinct. I mean. But you don't mean the yeah. second half of the movie runtime. You mean the s- the second scenario. So that's right. right. I mean, I mean, mm. in the present, or if you call that the present, which is him in rehab, there's a sort of uh, kind of melan melancholic tone, but kind of sentimental. And in the first part, when he's with his dad in the motel as, as his younger self, that to me is more kind of. That feels more present. I, it's and more, more honest. Painful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't. Maybe not more. Honest, but yeah, more real. Maybe. Yeah. Um, and it just made me think: Why have we? Why are we? It could be better done, but also, why do we need this? Why do rehab? we need the recovery? I yeah. know. I. You know what? That's actually a really good c- question because I. D- I feel like there was a moment when I was watching it where I, d- I wasn't a fan of the rehab bits because uh, I guess they just felt a bit contrived. Like some of the sort of lessons or sort of tasks that he was given, even though these kinds of things do happen in rehab, it felt like we didn't spend enough, t- like we just didn't, we weren't given the time there. So so it felt a little bit more contrived. It didn't feel as honest. You know, the, y- you know all you got from it was really the, the rubber band uh, flicking thing. And, and yeah, there were bits. But then, but I don't think it would be the same film without the idea of, 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 of this boy recovering and, and sort of looking back. Because, because I feel like we have seen a film, I, uh, you know, maybe you guys know which film, but I know that we have, mm. <laughs> seen some kind of film about, you know, a young child growing up in an abusive um, environment. But I don't know if we've seen the film 
the the you know essentially Shia Labu wrote, which is about his recovery. Yeah, there's not so much work about um, the the ways in which we have to recover. I think it's overall it's a it's a hopeful film, um, and I think to your point, Theo, that the dad never changes. I think that that's what the last scene, which isn't really a spoiler, that then it doesn't change the movie. That the last scene is about, you know, is um, the father hasn't changed, but he he. He, the but character is changed, okay with that because yeah. he has changed and he's yeah. recovered from that that trauma. Um, yeah. And yeah, as 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 an example in autobiography um, and art as trauma, I'm sure you know. I think that there's a there's a moment early on when he's arrested, um, and he does that whole "you don't know how good I am at what I do" thing yeah. in the back of the cop car. That I think was super recent, like yeah, t- mm. not less than it couldn't have been m- less than two years ago. But mm-hmm. I wouldn't say any more. And I think that that um, that's just super powerful. Th- this he he's in th- with this film. He's working through um, his entire is it his entire life trauma. Yeah, publicly. And doing it public. I mean, there is one question that I did ask myself is would this film be as powerful if we didn't know about his trajectory? And because I think part of the reason that I really, really enjoy this is because I also see an artist trying to find themselves and an artist try to do random things like performance art and trying to do all these crazy things. But then at the end, discovering that he can't escape the traumas and actually the art that he needs to focus on is his is is the trauma that's in him and mm-hmm. and w- which i think so many people as artists can relate to so but i but which is why i just really liked it you know i got online and i started reading all about his life and i was like really I, you know i forgot about him acting so young mm. but there is a question of like would it be that powerful if we didn't see basically Shia Labou grow up in front of us or with us really because we're around his age yeah, I, 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 I so I would say yes but I think I'd have different criticisms about the script and, and I think though the flaws um, like his relationship with the girl in the second half and I think those would be more apparent but what I would say is that watching the film even though I knew that this kid was supposed to be Shia Labou and that Shia Labou's playing his father it never once took me out, and I wasn't going. Oh, this is this actor playing his abusive father. Like, I d- it, it still worked in a container on its own for me, mm. even though it's very obviously, you know, there's just some hair change and makeup, costume change. Yeah. But it's very obviously him. But I think because it feel it helps that it does feel quite specific as well. Like a kid yeah. and his dad living in a motel, riding a motorbike from uh, from the set back to the motel each day. That's not mm-hmm. like a typical child actors experience yeah um i mean i don't i don't find him uninteresting but i don't find him particularly interesting so the idea of it being a film about him didn't really draw me to it and also he didn't direct it either so it's not like the autobiography is completely transparent um so i think there's a there's a layer removed which maybe means yeah, which it stands on its own, but I don't know. Yeah, Al Alma Harrell. Yeah, Alma Harrell. Um, who's a f- I think she's a friend of his or colla- that well they collaborated. She's before. done a few things with him. She's yeah. done a few music videos, I think. And he's pr- he, he uh, she, I saw a Q and A with her. She said he 
actually fund. He liked her first documentary so much. He funded mm-hmm. her second one. So I guess they have a good relationship. Yeah. Oh, that's um, amazing. I'm just looking at s- the scripts and trying to work out. That and apparently, also um, another interesting thing she said that he was he n- he didn't have any uh, input in the edit at all. He w- he didn't even go to the edit. Mm. Uh, he saw the f- the final cut. Um, he didn't. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. He didn't see any work in progress. Yeah. And he and he wasn't there uh, on set when they were shoot when when he when he wasn't needed when they were shooting. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So because it, it je- yeah. for the most part I, I haven't read the entire script but no. scanning through it it does look like the f- the the direction or the cut has has followed the script pretty closely. Yeah, I guess it's a quite a tight script. It's uh, th- the other thing sh- they they filmed it in um like 15 days or something. Oh wow. wow. Quite mad. Uh mm-hmm. all the um all the motel stuff was done in 9 days. Um, but uh, yeah, I think <laughs> and it actually an interesting comparison. I don't know. Have you got? Have you guys seen Mid Nineties? Jonah Hill. Yeah, yeah, I did see it, and yeah. uh, I w- I wasn't the biggest. No, fan. It's no, no, it's, I wasn't it's not very fan. good. It's a bit of a bit of a turkey. It, it feels like um, uh, him trying to ape Harmony Korine, who makes a, a guest yeah. appearance. By the way, is somebody mm-hmm. coming out of the bathroom? In um in mid nineties, in mid nineties, yeah. yeah. Um, and it just he didn't yeah. quite come. Did you off. see it as well? Yeah. yeah, yeah, but but I think the parallels are quite strong because like it's two, um, yes, popular or famous actors similar age making nostalgic films about their thir- their kind childhood, of prepubescent yeah. selves, yeah. basically and coming of age. What's the actor's name? Uh, Lucas Hedges is yeah. yeah. in it. Playing uh, an aggressive an angry <laughs> <laughs> But angry but it is um, mid nineties autobiographical to the to yeah. the degree oh of the um, abuse and I the mom. He, he said he, he said it wasn't um like narratively, but I think the sort of environment and it mm-hmm. feels like why would you make that film if it wasn't at least partly autobiographical because it's kind of niche. Yeah. Um, but I think the the difference is is that um Honey Boy is as far as I know, is you know taken from actual situations. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think, w- and also it's just, uh, yeah. The well, story it's just is narrative. Yeah, narratively specific. much much stronger. But um, yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting that they both got released at the same time, and well, Jonah Hill directed Mid Nineties, but and Sheila Booth didn't. But Jonah Hill doesn't act in Mid Nineties. Mm-hmm. Sheila Booth does do- act in. Honey boy, and I feel like that was probably a good decision from Sheila Booth because, well, have you said it? Because um, Jonah Hill's presence in mid nineties is just a little bit like as a director. Yeah, it just feels like a bit of a drag. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There are certain sort of stylistic ticks. Like there's a lot of a lot of jump cuts and kind of they were saying this sort of Harmony Korine or Larry Clark thing, which yeah, just it feels a bit like outdated and. I don't know. Not not that interesting for everyone. Maybe like it's cool for him. Yeah, he's just scratching the itch of what he wished he could do. Yeah. I mean, he did make clear uh, publicly that he had um, consulted Martin Scorsese before. I think. I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh. I think for directing um, tips. That's very uh, um, noticeable in the film. No. Um, <laughs> and then the only uh, the one other thing that's weirdly similar is. Both films, Jonah Hill and Sheila both feature younger avatars for themselves having implausible sexual relationships 
with hot, much older ethnic yeah. women. <laughs> that's true. As like turning points, which is just bizarre. Uh, do and you I think wa- I want to know more about that uh, synchronicity? Did you guys think that FKA Twigs storyline thing was real? You no. said that you, you I think it was real. a structural ploy. I feel like it probably was somewhat real in the same way I reckon Jonah Hill probably lost his virginity because otherwise it's too like no, it's I too uninteresting. I, ju- I, ju- I, actually, I don't know. So the reason I didn't think it was real because it was, and this might be the the difference is that I I don't think that it was cl- uh, clear or even intended that, uh, that um, Sheila Booth lost his virginity or the ki- Otis loses virginity to her. I think it was leading us towards that, but in actual fact, it was just a platonic relationship. And then when the father comes home drunk. You know, where it's kind of this dramatic irony where we and know he, that they haven't had, had sex. To get, the father had tried to yeah. hit on her as yeah. well. To me, so. that wasn't clear or like, like meaningful. Mm-hmm. I just, I think it's the weak, probably the weaker section. Mm. I mean, I think there was maybe a tiny bit of a problem with the. But just her character. That's she why was I, a bit I think it was false. It looked like yeah. they had to cut around her acting quite a lot as well, which maybe didn't the help with the clarity. Or the but oh, why did that happen? I, well, I don't think she's acted before. I don't okay. know. I thought it was an accent why did they thing. Cast yeah, no, that happens. I thought it was an accent thing, huh? Why did they cast her? I uh, think she's cool. Because she's cool, yeah. I f- actually, I did think about it a bit more. I feel like the reason both of them have put in these scenes is because... It's a sort of perfect storm of maybe being the sympathy of possibly being abused, but then like the like macho credit for having sex with a much older and hot woman, which <laughs> is like for those two guys who I'm sure have quite complicated but also quite basic egos that is mm-hmm. like the pinnacle of how they want to be viewed is sort of like damaged but damaged strong. but yeah and it just made me think about a sort of um uh, some films that have come up recently which are all wonderful which kind of deal with sort of young men growing up in abusive environments uh you know uh obviously honey boy mid 90s uh, minding the Gap, which was amazing. I, these are really, really interesting <coughs> films. I think it really sort of brings together this sort of 90s generation of, of boys who essentially escaped uh, abusive households, you know, by skating. And, you know, it was so part of our culture. Um, I just wonder if there's space or how people would respond to, to, you know, the sister in that relationship. Obviously, I'm the only woman here, and I'm talking about, like, you know, like, what if we start hearing the female version of these stories? And I don't think they would be as romantic, you know? I don't think that we would be able to see them in the way that we're seeing them now, where where it's, I don't know, I just s- somehow it would be a lot more dreary. It these are also two films that were shot in L.A. I mean, wha- yeah. mi- Mining the Gap is like the East Coast, Mining right? A- Mining the Gap mm. is East Coast. Yes, it is about, I mean, it is American, but... I, it's two different worlds. I guess I'm just, yeah, I, I guess that my question <coughs> is if, if this was from a female perspective, because let's face it, all of these families probably had a sister in there, I- they would just... I don't even know what I'm saying. I just know yeah. that they would not find the same kind of response or even be accepted as much. It would just be like, it's almost like it's too taboo for for abuse to be spoken 
in 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 contact with women, I guess. Mm-hmm. It but also, yeah, it wouldn't be as cool. Either. It wouldn't be as cool. What would the sister and even Stevens's film look like? Yeah, yeah. maybe Fish Tank has a little bit of that. Which is definitely an influence on this film. Yeah, right? yeah, and so but I Fish Tank is a good example of what film, what you're talking about. Yeah, but it would be I guess cool. It does exist? I think to see that like equivalent of a famous actress creating and sort of nostalgic. Yeah. Film, a film about their childhood, like Scarlett Johansson. Maybe not her, but she was a ch- she was a child actor though. Yeah. Uh, who else could do it? Um, yeah, I think it would just be interesting. Drew to Barrymore. See yeah, Drew Barrymore, and she also had a really interesting. She's a bit life. too old. She also did a lot of drugs. Well, she did yeah. lots of drugs, yeah. and she has quite an interesting like experience as a child actor. But, but I who think you're the same age. That's why. That's uh, a good point. Could the it would be nine. It would be that's why. That's why right, I thought you were kind of saying that view that view of the nineties for. For men, I well, guess. What, who, what are the twins called again? The um, Mary Kate and Ashley. Mary Kate and Ashley. I don't know. Yeah, they're about <laughs> that age. But yeah, I guess I guess the the nostalgia. But it's also like it's it's a mixture of like nostalgia of the nineties and and the sort of like balance between being damaged and man, but also mm-hmm. being like quite powerful and and. Yeah, I think it's the last time men sort of not the last time, but men could be kind of outwardly macho and yeah. and not have to really give a shit about c- like political consequences mm-hmm. which i suppose also coincides with these two guys Jonah um Jonah Hill and Sheila Booth becoming famous so they have more responsibilities but also we definitely now live more in an age where you have consequences for stuff Ye- and i think they both look at the mm-hmm. 90s as being a bit more of an innocent time where you were free of consequences but i would add to that mm-hmm. i think that the the two films whether intentionally or not um, I mean, just to add, I, I I wouldn't be so hard on on Sheila Laboo because I do think he's genuine in his in like yeah, he's no, very no, sincere and he's aware of the ma- the issue of, of you know the major issue. But I think the two films also have this they 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 deal with that generational issue of mm-hmm. um, you know skate culture yeah, it's was boomers. it's boomers who basically would treat children that way or would be there's that yeah. and then the that e- even though skate culture the music uh, s- some of the time was very progressive and you know, the bands were quite um progressive politically speaking or some of them could be definitely mm-hmm. uh, but the cu- and and you know general american culture was moving you know towards more uh, away from machoism mm-hmm. but at the same time there were the still these like subcultures and pockets yeah but there were still yeah. these like mm-hmm. expectations on men and young men uh, but at the same time th- and they were also they st- there was still like rape culture and 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 you know rife sexism and, and kind of traditional ideas mm-hmm. of of heterosexual uh yeah i mean i see that a lot i mean i even see that with like you know my brother like my f- my parents don't understand the idea that he wants like a simple life that does not involve career goals and i was like well, what's wrong with a man being a house husband and they can't wrap their head around that you know and it's just kind of like but that there's that there's yeah. that bit in mid 90s that that gets at the the, the macho thing a little bit um and one of the, I mean, I know that they're just kids, but that makes it even more mm. poignant when he says thank you for oh something, yeah. for yeah. a cigarette or uh, something. Yeah. He says, don't say, no, thank, don't you. say thank you. People yeah. think you're gay yeah. or something. Yeah. You know. But then the other guy says, you can, you can you say you thank you. Exactly. Yeah. And the guy says, no, it's just, that's just good manners or yeah. something like yeah. that. And, and there were some little moments like that in the film, which were. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I guess they're just like all of these contradictions of, of growing up at that time. But the, yeah, the, the tensions of yeah. changing political. Uh, 
yeah. uh, landscapes, I guess. Yeah, which is really interesting. I guess the female equivalent of that generation right now, even though it doesn't have sort of that kind of abuse, is, is Ladybird. Um, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she had... I, I don't know if Ladybird dealt with any kind of tensions, um, <coughs> with those generational ton- tensions as well as mm-hmm. mid-19s or Honey Boy did. She, she said the, f- the first draft didn't... Uh, yeah, that was interesting. The mm-hmm. first draft didn't have the rehab bit in it. Oh, no mm. way. So it was 90 pages of him as a kid. That Wha- is... Well, d- yeah, I don't know how many, yeah. but... Yeah, it was just the, the And kid. so then they, how did they decide to put the rehab... Because, I mean, that's, I think, what makes it... That would have been a good question as well. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Huh. There were too many aspiring writer-directors in the Q&A who were just... Who were they talking to? Shia or... No, it was just Alma, Alma Harrell, oh. yeah. Oh, yeah, mm. Alma's got a following. Yeah, it was a lot of people, oh, I follow you on Instagram. Yeah. Well, I, I hadn't realised that. And they'd be like, you're, yeah, your Instagram page is really inspiring or something. Yeah, I mean... I felt, I felt like a bit of a millennial. <laughs> not well, I was like, whatever, I felt a bit old. Not, not millennial or whatever. Well, she like uh, founded this uh, free the bid thing, which is about women working in advertising. <coughs> so she's gotten really big, and she's become like a really big ad like advocate for that. Yeah. So she's sort of like a bit of inf- an influencer, kind of. Yeah, 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 definitely. Like, um, definitely. Is this her first feature? We her first mention. fiction. She's done a few documentaries which I haven't seen. I've heard that. I've heard they're very good, and they're really good. Yeah, I've heard uh, that um, they're really friends good. Friends said Bombay Beach and the other one Love Truth. Yeah. yeah, my friend saw Bombay Beach and said it was really good. And also, she shot this stuff on her own. Like she kind of just went out, shot these documentaries for a while. Bombay Beach, I think, is about a really poor community on a beach in California, and she sort of shot that over a couple years and followed a few characters there. Mm-hmm. So it kind of makes sense that Sheila Boo would be attracted to her work because I think she kind of looks at sort of marginalized communities in the U.S. Um, and it's sort of poetic neorealism. Yeah. yeah, she has like a bit of dreamy stuff, I think, in her documentaries as well. I think that's how he sees himself. Yeah. Real and poetic. 